you know, your experience with a red triangle versus my experience as a child with a red triangle are stored in our brain. And so then when we look at a painting or we look at a stop sign or you look at an advertisement that has an image of a red triangle, you and I are both going to have completely different experiences. life in the time of climate change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as ways of giving us all new ideas and inspiration for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and this season, we at How It Looks From Here are fortunate to have several guests who are younger leaders. Jessine Munson, our guest today, is one of these. Jessine is a Montanan born and raised. She landed on the planet in 1988 and is now an artist, historian, and philosopher. These days, she's completing work on a Ph.D. dissertation and at the same time is active in her art and related business, giving time in addition to her work as a philanthropist through the nonprofit she helped establish, The Compassion Project. Today, we'll talk about the way things look to Jessine and how her work and relationships in the world are inextricably woven in with the natural world and her devotion to climate repair. Hi, this is Mary Claire. It's How It Looks From Here. And today my guest is Jessine Munson. Jessine, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, Thanks for having me. Oh, it's just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, you know, one of the ways that we start this um, podcast, uh, because it's a podcast about how the world looks to different people, and when it comes down to it, no two of us see the world exactly alike. So my question to you would be, right now, metaphorically, not, um, how does the world look to you? The world seems really exciting right now. Um, And that's a good place to feel. I feel like sometimes I can um, have a tendency to get bogged down by all the things and all the interactions. And right now... um, there's this particular vibration that I feel, um, and I'm really, really excited to roll into this new year on this particular frequency. Um, it's been really interesting in my professional life. I think, um, I, I mean, obviously COVID is still a thing that we're uh, involved with right now, but I feel like people have got a little bit more of a handle on it and so are starting to figure out how how to deal with these certain things. Um, Like for example, I feel like campus is just coming back to life for the first time in a couple years. I mean, I've met people um, in the last couple of weeks who got hired right in 2019. 
And so I never got to meet them. I never got to interact with them. And all of a sudden, I have this whole new world of resources that I never knew about. Um, And it's just really interesting to see how much that slowed us down in a very meaningful way to come back and now have these um, really deep, meaningful connections. It's just been, it's been interesting um, because life had definitely slowed down for a little bit. And all of a sudden I feel like I'm this giant snowball just kind of rolling down the hill, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, And it's, it's great. It's a really, really nice energy. Wonderful. And so when you use that snowball analogy and you say, there's something about the vibe that feels better. Can mm-hmm. say more about that? What does that mean to you? Um, I think we've been forced to kind of have this reckoning of uh, honesty mm. about what humans are capable of. Uh, you mean the positive and the negative? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that negative is just important as the positive too. You know, it's it's. It's all combined and to make us one and interact with humans and one another. And um, it's definitely been a wild few years. And I feel like uh, personally, I've just kind of like reemerged as this really, I'm very sure of myself and where I stand um, from having to kind of be so introspective in some of these challenges the last few years. Yeah, that's really lovely. That's (laughs) Okay, well, yeah, I know that part of what you're doing with your life is uh, quite actively right now is completing work on an interdisciplinary PhD that's focused significantly on the work of Dewey. So as we get started, um, could you help, how would you help our listeners know who Dewey was if they don't know? Yeah, John Dewey, um, and he... He is just the most fascinating thinker for me. Um, And it's funny because I have this assumption that if anybody's familiar with American history, that name is familiar. But oftentimes people go, oh, the Dewey Decimal System. Um, Two different people. That's not John Dewey at all. Um, So what I find so amazing is that thanks to advances in cognitive science that we have now, a lot of the things that Dewey was kind of... um, playing with have now been proved. And it's just so incredible that he was doing this late 1800s, early 1900s about functional psychology and how our experiences affect our actions. Um, It's all interconnected. We are dynamic human beings. Therefore, there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. Um, Hands-on, learning by doing. It's about the process over the product. Um, and just experience, you know, his theory on experience is really what does it for me, because as you were saying, you know, each of us humans are so individual and have everything that we've developed personally that we bring into community. And that's really what he was saying is that, you know, we each have something to contribute to the greater whole. Um, and I just think that's beautiful. You know, often, um, he gets kind of written off as this whipping boy for the faults of progressive education. Um, And it's just unfortunate. Um, And while I've read accounts that Dewey was not a great teacher, um, it's because he's a researcher. He was theory and praxis. His mind was constantly, constantly thinking about 
the ways in which these interactions led to the greater whole. You know, he was always, uh, he was just always somewhere else thinking about the future of humanity. He was very focused on globalization. How do we communicate? Um, this idea of democracy, not being the democratic republic that we have, but like this area for optimal growth, once people can realize how to communicate with each other. Um, well, then yeah, let me stop know. you I... there for a second, the democracy part, yeah. because that is yeah. really up in our country right now and across the world as it ought to be, perhaps we could say, or it's a bit providential because we're being asked by the way that humans are behaving with each other, what do you mean when you say democracy? And mm-hmm. so I'm curious, you were saying something quite, my, my understanding of democracy is that the people who are affected by a decision have a say in the decision. But that too mm-hmm. may be narrower than what Dewey was seeing. What can you say about that democracy from Dewey's standpoint and yours? Yeah, um, so this idea of optimal growth. So um, he uses this example of being able to approach a complete stranger on a street corner and having this skill set to be able to have a discussion with them, whether or not you agree or not, but being able to go so far to their side and them going so far to your side in order for this like complete understanding. Um, And I just find that so admirable. Um, I wish we could listen to each other better. I wish we could try and understand each other's perspective insides a little bit better. Um, Is your sense that that would make... um make for, you know, there's this thing at the basis of almost every um, cosmological understanding or every uh, intellectual, spiritual um, tradition that is essentially loving kindness, that is Mm -hmm. essentially, it's, yeah, that, that this is who we are and this is what we can do. And then that's in the end, quite easier than being at war with each other, for example. Yeah. And it takes such less energy, you know? um, Yeah. And that's what Dewey was talking about in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you say? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Your next thought. Yeah. um, Well, and I'm just thinking about, you know, personal feelings for democracy right now. Um, I find myself very conflicted. I have to say that the physical um, like trauma that I've felt from January 6th, it, it is insane. To see what happened at the Capitol and to think that there's a good part of the population who thought that that's what being a, a, a citizen stood for versus people that are sitting back and who have maybe experienced the Capitol before and have been in the Capitol before. And, you know, just the respect you have in those halls. Um, that was really bothersome to me. Um, and I've been trying to navigate it, to be honest, um, because I come from a place of privilege, 
I've almost had to put some of that stuff in compartmentalized in the back of my brain in order to get my dissertation done um, because I'm writing about the historical present and it's really difficult to try to stay objective when it's something that affects us so poignantly. Um, so tell us what the historical present is. Uh, basically our zeitgeist. Um, Say what right? that is, so, though. though. All these, yeah, you know, yeah. these are cool terms, but what, are, yeah. what, that, what does that mean to you? Um, so this feeling of the times. Um, I very much come from a historical background. Um, my master's is in art history. Most of my PhD classes are in history. And while I love history and it has informed all of my work, um, I'm really engaged in the so what, what now? So what do we, so what do we do with this? Um, and that places me in American studies. Um, I'm so happy to be in the discipline I am because the paradigm that our discipline is, is kind of this mode of action. Um, and that, that is what makes me tick. I, um, so what? So what are we going to do with all these things that we've learned? What are we going to do with all these things that we now understand about the preciousness of the human condition? Um, and what what do we do? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and that's where I'm living. And it's a very hard question. And it's, you know, sometimes um, paralyzes me with overwhelm. But then other times I get to interact and share and uplift and nurture and that's that's where the magic happens <laughs> yes well I, you know I you you use the term uh I am a person of privilege I want to um have you deconstruct that just a little bit in the context of um you came onto the planet in this form you were born in the late 80s and so mm-hmm. As you have moved through time, you have been in a particular zeitgeist. You have been mm-hmm. moving through a particular set of circumstances that we have been a part of, not just here in this country and not just here in this state, but globally. And mm-hmm. so what would you say uh, along the way has made it, and really thinking back when you were quite young, has made it so that you think this way, and this is what turns you on. And in in that, what do you mean by being a person of privilege? Interesting. Um, thanks for the question. Sure. Um, I think that I've always been interested in human connection, and I think that I have always been interested in taking away boundaries between anything. So like the compartmentalization that we often have as humans in order to understand something, um, I think frequently happens with people as well. So you have your um, business people, you have your academic people, you have your artist people, you know, just as a few examples. Um, And those categories aren't interesting to me. What's interesting is breaking through those categories and figuring out that common humanity. Um, and I think that that's something that I've always done as a child. You know, I, I think about 
to the different groups of people I hung out with growing up or, you know, the fact that I much rather uh, wanted to hang out with my grandmother's friends or, you know, pretend I was an adult with my mom um, and kind of in these different facets. And so you were interested along the way in hearing how the world looked to different people. Mm-hmm. Is that so? Yeah. 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 And, and I think talking about the privileged part, I think, um, I think I have been privileged because my mind works that way. Um, and I want, I want to be able to share that. Um, and then in the previous, you know, discussion where I'm talking about my privilege in terms of democracy, um, I'm privileged enough to the point where a lot of things that are being voted on aren't going to directly affect me, you know, um, this privilege of marriage act, you know, I, I'm, I'm safe where I'm at in that, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't fight for others. But because of thinking about my bandwidth and being able to get my research done, um, those are some things that I've had to do that don't feel great is kind of take a back seat. Um, but again, with the privilege I have in my mind, I'm always there for support and to help share and to um, bring people kind of together in an understanding space. Well, how does this bridge over for you? And again, looking back into your childhood, any stories from that time would be great, um, to the natural world and your relationship with those being the beings that in in the uh, compartmentalization that you were describing that humans tend to do, we tend to say silo humans, silo natural world. Mm-hmm. What has that been like for you? Um, I mean, it's the understanding that we are of the earth, right? Um, it's all interconnected, and it's unfortunate that it's been this. Um, kind of this illusion that we're disconnected, that we're separate from it. Um, You know, I think the same thing happened before when we thought that the mind and the spirit and the body were all different things too. And turns out it's just one and it's all interconnected. Um, And in terms of my work, um, you know, art-wise or academic-wise, I would say that nature's my savior. I mean, I the walks that I go and take that lead to those aha moments, that peaceful quiet. I mean, if I don't have to be in my studio or on campus, I am I am outside and I'm I'm connecting to nature and in doing that is connecting to myself. Um I grew up in Haver, Montana. I'm very much of the prairie. <laughs> um, there's just a certain certain relationship that I'm so thankful that I've gotten to develop. I don't know if that would have happened if I wasn't born and raised in Montana either, you know? So I always try to take that into perspective that, um, you know, some people are born and raised in the middle of a city and they don't they don't have the same experience that I'm so grateful to have here in Montana. This is Mary Claire and How It Looks From Here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break.
Yeah, I'm curious, right. as you've uh, pursued your study of Dewey, I know that he was significantly engaged or attentive to the outdoor, the the natural world. Has mm-hmm. that um, refined your understanding of, of who and how you move through the world? Uh, what have you learned from him or... How another way to ask this is how would what would you want to let him know <laughs> yeah. that he might not um, have been seeing? Dewey talks about this principle of continuity a lot, um, and it's about the experience in nature, and it's that all our you know previous all of our previous experiences are carried with us forward into our future experiences and decisions. Um, And again, that we are nature, it is interconnected. There's kind of this naturalism that happens as we develop and it's, it's in relationship with nature. Um, Oh man, what would I say to Dewey? Um, I have to stop myself sometimes because I, I find that I'm just um, so enthralled by him. I mean, some of his writing just speaks to my soul. Um, and as a researcher, you can imagine that's hard too, because I'm like, okay, no, don't praise, don't praise. Look at this a little bit more objectively. But the way he talks about being in nature, experience, art, kind of this human connection um, is just so honest and real. And he never tried to create a different vocabulary. He uses words that we're familiar with um and that was some of his downfall is that people weren't understanding he's trying to create this new term because it's a word that we already know um one of the things that I love the most is he's quoted in his later career that he wished that he would have used the word culture instead of experience so experience in nature would be culture in nature art is experience would be art is culture Um, and so that's how I connect it to what's happening now is understanding that the cultures that we are, you know, all agents, observers, and participants in are a part of nature. Um, they're not separate. Culture and nature is one. Culture, nature, art is one. Um, they just move in different ways. And then in this term that you were using earlier, the historical present or the zeitgeist, the historical presence, let's go with that. Um, just a few moments ago, you were saying everything that happens or that mm-hmm. has happened informs who and how we are now, which Dewey used the term experience um, but wishes he used the word, the term culture, which in some ways makes more sense because it extends beyond the beginning of this lifetime. Mm-hmm. So that would would that be so? So that we're really this the, the you know in uh, psychology there's been some very helpful emergence of understanding of epigenetic uh, trauma, generational trauma, and Absolutely. so these things are really coded into us in ways we might not understand. But the other thing that's coded into us is generational resilience, because we Mm -hmm. wouldn't be talking with each other right now if there weren't some measure, significant, quite substantial measure of that, Mm -hmm. that have brought us to this Mm -hmm. moment. So yeah, that, that I think is, um, 
is something fascinating that Dewey was seeing. Is that, would you agree with that? Is that a fair take? Yeah. Yeah, it is absolutely a fair take. And I think, I honestly think that, um, has to do with some of the issues of his reception is that he was really a forward thinker. I mean, he was seeing the way that the industrial revolution changed everything and the way that, um, there were elements that, that lacked humanity and that we needed to get back together and talk about, you know, what it is to be human in order to move forward successfully. And he was seeing these things happen and worried for our future. And so that, I mean, that's why he's talking about a lot of these things. He was worried about um, globalization. He was worried about consumerism. Um, and so when I talk about historical present, oftentimes um, I'm thinking about the work of Lauren Berlant, and she wrote a book called Cruel Optimism that's just um, fantastic. But it's it's really addressing that this, age of anxiety that we live in, which is, um, it's true. You know, we are constantly bombarded by images. Um, I've never experienced so much anxiety when I have just a TV on, I don't have cable, but if I witness like a stream of commercials, I've never felt so like (gasps) it's loud, it's flashing. It's just, um, it's a lot. And to understand that that's in, somebody's life pretty routinely day to day of course there's effects of that um there's effects of social media it's affecting the way that we read and understand um and so just kind of acknowledging that and again not criticizing you know we we've done so much um profound things as humans but just acknowledging Mm -hmm. acknowledging these things and the way they affect us and and taking a different approach to them. I, I'm so grateful for my art history education because I feel like it made me such a critical thinker. You know, I, I walk into any store and I'm like, okay, this is constructed and laid out in a certain way that's going to try to sell me something. You know, what is it? And just being able to think outside that mm-hmm. rather than be so influenced by whatever it is. So there is an extent to which finding ways to reveal that um, our anxiety arises significantly from the fact that anxiety sells stuff. Mm -hmm. We will buy things to alleviate our anxiety, but at the same time, we're caught in this paradoxical kind of um, eddy in human consciousness with advertisers telling us we're never enough. So the anxiety gets to keep being stirred up, so we'll keep buying stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know that yep. that fits with what you're seeing when when you go. Well, yeah, I mean, that's surveillance capitalism, right? It's, it's targeted. It is, um, yeah, and unfortunately way more towards women than it is to anybody Say else. Say more about that. How do you see that? Um, with beauty products, um, you know, and even, I can't remember... I'm told, is it the pink tax, I think? I'm thinking about the cost of a male's razor versus the cost of a female's razor. Even though they're exactly the same, but maybe one's pink, females cost more money. Um, Yeah, it's just, again, an observation. Um, I'm in constant observation. And I, 
I guess that's my hope for humanity is this observation. Um, and again, we don't have to pass judgment. We don't have to look at it with a critical lens, but the more in which we can observe, it adds to the ways in which we know. And the more we can share the ways in which we've observed something, we even just add to our database. <laughs> and then from there, we have more choices, would you say? Choices, um, opportunity for understanding. Um, I think the whole reason I even continued to get my PhD or have been so excited about furthering my education is just, I'm so intrigued by the ways in which people come to know something. Um, because again, our previous histories have determined, you know, what's in our brain, what kind of memories we have stored, you know, your experience with a red triangle versus my experience as a child with a red triangle are stored in our brain. And so then when we look at a painting or we look at a stop sign or you look at an advertisement that has an image of a red triangle, you and I are both going to have completely different experiences from the ways in which we had experienced something previously. And so what I find interesting is to share that, to share that and say, you know, I thought of this when I saw that image or, um, you know, and hearing from around the table how you came to know what you know. Because when we share that, it's this like authenticity of human knowing and we get to explain. And the more you explain and learn from one another, then it just adds to your memory bank. So now you know about 10 different interpretations of that thing. And I... For me, that's the beauty of knowledge and learning and human connection. And that interaction is, um, yes, something that we want to build up. It happens generally when people are at ease with each other. And so we know mm -hmm. that right now the other thing that is stirred up in a big way in our culture is to be very uncomfortable. And to mm -hmm. size someone up like that and then to say, you know, talk to the hand. You're not one that fits for me, so I'm not going to talk with you. Very, very in contrast to what Dewey, uh, as you described him earlier, w invites us to do. One mm -hmm. of the things that Gary and I wrote about in the Full Ecology book is the difference between description and evaluation. Mm -hmm. So you were saying this earlier, um, that when we describe how the world looks to us, rather than evaluating the way another person is looking at the world, but in addition to describing ours, being open to listening to their description. And, mm -hmm. and that's a bit tougher to do when tensions are high. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a whole lot of practice that we need in yeah. all of this. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I know that you have become a part and may have been uh, instrumental in establishing a nonprofit organization called the Compassion mm -hmm. Project. Yes. yes. How would you describe that to our listeners? Um, uh, it's the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so uh, Compassion Project started in 2017 and originally came out of MSU's College of Education. And when you say MSU, uh, you mean Montana State University? Montana State, okay. yep. <laughs> As I'm pointing, it's right there. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, and it started as an anti-bullying campaign. There was a lot of reports of uh, bullying in the elementary schools. And um, that's kind of how the project kicked off. But it's just grown and developed into something um, that we would have never imagined. So we received our 501c3 nonprofit status about three years ago. So no longer involved with MSU, but have become our own organization. And we work on spreading compassion through art and mindfulness, which sounds like a very simple vision, but... What is art? What is mindfulness? What is compassion? You know, these are these are pretty big questions. Um, what would you say and, about the last one? What is compassion? Yeah. Um, How does it look to you, lots, let's say, because it will look different to all the listeners, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I love starting with the etymology. That's my favorite. So compassion um, is to suffer with, um, which you might not think. You think of compassion and you might have hearts and warm and fuzzy feelings come to mind, but really it means to suffer with. Um, so the first step is to notice that there's suffering, which is a part of our human condition. And so the way that we define compassion with Compassion Project is uh, compassion is mindful support, relief, and genuine human kindness to others, ourselves, and with the earth. We were initially thinking... Um, compassion of the earth you know we're trying to figure out the right language around it in these definitions and I just would love to give a shout out to our amazing director uh executive director Tia Goebel she's just um I'm so honored to get to work with her she's such a mindful amazing human being but talking about the language it's it's with the earth because again we are of the earth we're talking about being relationship with the earth. So it's not compassion for the earth, it's with the earth. It's interesting, somewhat frustrating that we have to consider the reasons that people are now maybe getting more engaged with this climate crisis is for the means of their own survival. But that's human nature, right? And so what we're really focused on is getting people in the right relationship with themselves in order to move forward in the right relationship for our future. Um, well, that's one of the things that I wanted to hear you at the, at the close of our time here um, speak about, and that is climate anxiety is really a thing. And you were speaking yep. about anxiety earlier. And so in this time when it is just understandable, if not even reasonable, um, perhaps, which doesn't seem quite right when you're talking about anxiety, but to be having some measure of feeling just off with what's happening mm -hmm. with the climate. What mm -hmm. do you and your colleagues see at the Compassion Project as, what would you offer as, uh, I don't want to say advice, as suggestions for people to consider for living with and and uh, calming as is possible mm -hmm. that anxiety, but not mm -hmm. uh, but really kind of quite then in service to being a part of the solution insofar as any individual is able. Mm -hmm. One of the things we do is we like to offer tools. Um, 
tools for well-being. So um, mindfulness is huge. Um, and say what you mean and, by that. Yeah, and it can be as simple um, as grounding. So going outside and putting your bare feet on the ground, just closing your eyes, taking a deep breath, just slowing down for a minute. Um, Another way that I think it's really accessible is a body scan. So, you know, if you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed or maybe you're having writer's block or something, but just to kind of sit back in your chair, comfortable position, you know, if it's comfortable for you to close your eyes and just kind of move from your head down. What sensations are you feeling? And and again, the most important part, don't pass judgment on those sensations. Just think of them as moving clouds. And and that practice for me has helped in so many situations just to come back to kind of my honest self like okay I've now calmed my nervous system in a way that I feel like I can react and and the biggest thing with compassion too is that you have to have compassion for self because we can't pour from an empty cup thank you yes yeah and and so that's where we're often focused is giving these tools, providing these tools, um, you know, journal prompts. Um, well, our workshops typically start with a meditation and then we have these art projects. Um, and so typically it's just like an hour of play. There's markers, paints, whatever. And we just ask people to play. Again, it's not about this product, but what colors did you feel in your meditation? Were there sensations that you think you could capture? And so then they're just playing and talking. And then from there, we kind of create a final art piece, which is some of those wooden blocks you may have seen around Bozeman. And the response that people have after that, I mean, that's why I do the work I do. There's something transformational in that process of being able to connect and create and um simply play you know it expresses it expresses these internal things that we don't quite have language for and is able to express them creatively and then it's it's the ripples it's the little ripples that we cultivate as a compassionate practice that ripple out into the world and that's That's what I believe. (laughs) That is what I believe in. And that's what I think my purpose is, is to continue the ripples. I, for example, we just had this event last week and the woman hosting it had heard a quote, I think two years ago from one of our board members. And she said that she shares it with friends all the time. Um, And it's the idea that boundaries are the way that I can love you and myself simultaneously. And to hear that one little snippet from our workshop be carried to, you know, 30 people thus far. um, Those are those ripples. And yeah, it's pretty special. (laughs) Well, we will make sure and put a link to the Compassion Project in the show notes. Yeah, And um, also... For, for listeners to learn a bit more about John Dewey, 
and about the other book that you were referencing. So we'll make sure that those things are there. And thank Perfect. you so much for your work and for spending time with the How It Looks From Here podcast today. Thanks, yeah, Jessie. Thanks so much for having me. Greatly appreciate it. You can learn more about Jessine by visiting her website at the URL in our show notes. You can also check out The Compassion Project at CompassionProject.org. Finally, we've listed resources Jessine mentioned in our conversation. Catch the thread of Jessine's worldview and optimism. Make sure to check out John Dewey's writings and Lauren Berlant's book, Cruel Optimism. During our conversation, I referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, authored by me and Gary Ferguson, and available in bookstores everywhere. And now, before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the Systems Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire. Editing by Gary Ferguson. Music by Gary Ferguson and Cedar Mathers Wynn. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.